0: Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Science Focus magazine, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, a neuroscientist whose research is shaking up conventional wisdom in the world of psychology. Lisa is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, and she's the author of two brilliant books, how emotions are made, and seven and a half lessons about the brain, which has recently just been released in paperback form. Today, Lisa's joined us to talk about her work and her take on some of the common misconceptions we have about the brain. To begin with, I start off with something we probably all think is true, and that's that the brain is built primarily for thought or for thinking, but Lisa's got a different perspective.
1: No, it's really not the case. Um, You know, when I started to think about writing this book, I asked myself, why do we even have a brain? You know, brain is very expensive. So that three pound blob of meat between your ears costs about 20% of your metabolic budget. So it's the most expensive organ you have in your entire body. And I thought, well, why did brains evolve? Like they're very, very expensive. And you can't really say why anything evolved. I mean, you can make up stories and you can make educated guesses, but you can say, you can look at the record, the evolutionary record, the developmental record, and you can say, okay, well, what is, what is a, an organ's most important job? What is its main function? And when you look at the evolution of the brain, it's really pretty clear that the brain's most important job is not thinking, and it's not feeling, and it's not even seeing. It's running the systems of your body to keep you alive and well so that you can do your most important job from, you know, evolution standpoint, which is to pass your genes on to the next generation and help that generation survive to reproductive age.
0: And so why was that where you started? And and why is that important, I suppose? Because it does feel like everything then... I suppose pulls out from that idea that actually the brain isn't you know solely built for thought.
1: Well first of all I think it cautions us to have a bit of humility and be <laughs> to be a little more humble than we usually are as humans right so we you know we think of ourselves I mean throughout the course of scientific history we've thought about ourselves as the pinnacle of evolution. And clearly that's not the case, meaning I'm not even actually making a snide remark, a cheeky remark about poli- politicians or what have you. I'm just saying that, um, that evolution doesn't aim itself at any particular function or, or any particular type of animal We are very well adapted to our environment, to our niche, as it's called, and so are other animals, very well adapted to their niches. So I think it teaches us to be humble, but more important, I think it teaches us to ask very, very different questions than we're normally asking. And so here's one example. The comorbidity rate, the frequency with which heart disease occurs with depression is very, very high. In the United States, The estimates are about 70%, and I don't know what the worldwide estimates are, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're similar. And scientists and physicians ask themselves, you know, what is it about heart disease that leads people to be vulnerable to depression? Or what is it about depression that leads people to be vulnerable to heart disease? When we look at the function of the brain, the brain's main function, which tells us something about its structure, how to understand its structure and the way that it works, we realize both those questions are completely wrong. Because heart disease is fundamentally a metabolic illness and so is depression. So I'm not reducing everything to your metabolism, but I'm telling you this is a really important factor that is overlooked. Serotonin, for example, which is a chemical in the brain, which is there is imbalance in this chemical, um, in depression, people think about this chemical as the happiness chemical, but you know it actually functions as a metabolic regulator in your brain and your body, and it evolved for that purpose. It evolved as the same thing with dopamine. It's not a reward chemical. It's a chemical that helps you to expend effort in the service of obtaining a, a reward or, or really engaging in any behavior that will cause you to spend a lot of energy a lot of glucose and oxygen and so on. So the question, asking the right questions about illness and health really require that we understand how brains work. And our own experience of the world and ourselves in the world is not always the best guide to understanding what's happening under the hood.
0: So, I mean, on the one hand, there's obviously saying that we're just sort of machines for self-regulation doesn't necessarily chime in with my own uh, experience of existence, I suppose. But also, I, I studied psychology, actually, at, at undergrad, and and what I've loved about your books is how much of a sort of change in perspective that you kind of get across is perhaps needed across psychology. And just for those of us who perhaps haven't studied psychology, you know, that's, that's not actually what necessarily we've been how we've described the brain in the last sort of decade or even longer. When we go to university, we learn about different sections of the brain and how they govern us. And actually the brain is very separate to the body.
1: Yeah. So all of these things are very, very debatable, I would say. And I I will say that, you know, like you, I don't experience every hug I give, every insult I bear. As having anything to do with my metabolism <laughs> or my energy <laughs> regulation, um, but that's the, but you know your your own experience is not a great guide to how the brain works. I mean, the brain is a bit of a a master of deception because our brains create our our experiences and and our guide our actions with such stealth and, and actually trick us into believing that the products of its efforts are, really reveal its functions and it but it, do, they, it doesn't. And so for example, the idea that you have one part of your brain for thinking and another part of your brain for feeling and that the two are locked in mortal combat, you know your brain is battleground between rationality and, and emotion. And if rationality prevails, you're a moral person and you're healthy and if emotionality prevails it's either because you didn't try hard enough ie you're not moral or you can't you're you know your emotions are too intense to control the animalistic part of yourself too intense to control and therefore you must be mentally ill or or you know have illness in some way and this is a this is a morality tale that's been with us since plato and it's embedded in many of the institutions of western Culture like the law. And, you know, the law in the US and also the law in the UK are really founded on some of these ideas, but they have no reality in the structure and function of the brain. It's not really possible anatomically for you to be free of feeling if you are free of feeling and here i'm using the word feeling is separate from the word emotion because they're not necessarily they don't mean the same thing if you are free of feeling then you something's wrong with your brain
0: and is is that changing now in psychology i wonder since since i read your first book which talks about how we understand how the brain creates emotion and that for the most part we've thought of the brain as this very separate entity to our bodies. It's just in this closed off area and it doesn't interact. And actually your perspective on, on how we look at the brain and understand our minds is, is to actually have a much more holistic view of how the brain works with the body. Is that changing in psychology now?
1: You know, when you're at the eye of a storm, it's really hard to know what the full, (laughs) uh, what the full magnitude of the storm looks like. It's really hard for me to answer that question I what I want to say is that I think there are pockets of psychology which have been saying similar things the whole time. And even if you go back as far as William James, you know who is the one considered to be one of the founders of American psychology, you could even go look at at Wilhelm Wundt, some of his earlier writings, which is the, you know, he's one of the founders of European psychology. Some of these ideas are lurking in those writings actually. I mean, James and and Wundt also, I think, really advocated for a holistic approach and really questioned folk psychology categories like memory, perception, you know, rationality, you know, cognition, emotion, really questioned whether these were the categories that really represent the functions of the brain. Um, so clearly the brain is producing these events. But that doesn't necessarily mean the brain is organized with little territories for each ability. And even somebody who has written about territories in in the cerebral cortex, Broadman, this this um, neuro- neuroscientist named Broadman, made it really clear that he was talking about architectural arrangements of cells, and he didn't really think that each of these little islands that you could distinguish in terms of their st- structure, the the way that neurons are talking to each other, had anything to do with function. <laughs> so it I mean so I'm not saying that that you know your cerebral cortex doesn't have a function and that your hippocampus and like all the parts don't have functions they do but those functions tend to be what we would call domain general in psychology meaning whatever they're doing they're doing no matter whether the event that's being created is an emotion or a thought or an action or a perception or and so on that that these are, it's a little bit like, you know, if you have flour, water, and salt, you know, you can do a lot with that. You can make a lot of different things with that, um, including some things that that aren't even food, you know, like glue, for example. So the idea is, is, is a little bit the same. And I would say, you know, there's always gonna be pushback. There's always gonna be pushback. Being wrong is part of science, but you're not rewarded for being wrong. Some scientists have spent their entire lives Entire careers invested in a particular way of seeing things. And not everybody has the fortitude to realize when they're wrong. And I actually think, you know, we should be rewarding scientists when they, because being wrong doesn't mean that you haven't contributed to the process of science. So this is something I think the public doesn't necessarily understand that when the media sometimes reports being, you know, when there's a course correction, the media sometimes reports it as kind of like a gotcha moment, but actually being wrong is an opportunity for discovery and it requires a certain degree of bravery. And um, I've been wrong at times and had to admit it. And um, I've worked with colleagues who've been wrong and have had to admit it in print, you know, and, and we congratulate each other and support each other. So do I think things are changing? I hope things are changing, but if you look at introductory psychology textbooks, many of the things that are printed in those textbooks we know are not true anymore. I mean, we now know that are are not true. And that's, that was really the topic of my first book, How Emotions Are Made.
0: Mm, I sometimes wrestle with my own knowledge in that um, I just have these things I've learned from my undergrad degree that are just rooted in there and sometimes oh, yeah. they read something. Well, larger. me too,
1: me too. I have to say, I mean, I when I was going to school, I learned that each emotion category that uh, of a select few in English have a universal expression. That's not true. I learned that different types of memory have different locations in the brain. So when you have a general memory versus a very specific memory that's very specific to you at a specific time and place, um, that's not true. And so it's very hard, actually, to remind yourself again and again and again that there's a different and better scientifically more valid way of seeing things. And and that's what you have to be using because you do, you do tend to fall back on these old habits, but you can train yourself not to. It just requires, you know, it's like a, it's an investment of effort, like an exercise is.
0: So then I just want to just highlight then and go go, drill a little deeper in that um, idea. So we sort of learn and hear all throughout history about brains having these very distinct regions uh, or divisions whether it's plato and his his different three regions or uh, freud or uh, whoever but you see it a different way and so so if if it isn't that kind of you know very clearly mapped out thing how, how do you see the brain as structured
1: well let me just point out that um plato was really writing about the psyche Which is loosely but not really not completely translated as the mind. (laughs) So (laughs) you know, for all of you philosophers and historians out there, I know that they're not equivalent, but for today's purposes, we can treat them as equivalent. I think Freud made gestures to neurology, but he really was talking about the mind. And Freud's view of the mind is very similar to Plato's view. It's very and what happened really in the 20th century, or one way to think about what happened in the 20th century is that neuroscientists took this theory of the mind, which is very old and is very rooted in morality, you know, which is a requirement for humans living together in groups, which is our major adaptive advantage. So it's an important thing. But they took it and they sort of tattooed it onto the brain and said, ah, well, you know, we can see with our naked eye, we can see that there's a part of the brain which we share with lizards, the so-called lizard brain, right? Um, that is for instincts, and sometimes you know they'll tell a funny like this is this is like a classic scientist joke, like the four Fs, the four Fs circuitry for the four Fs: fleeing, fighting, feeding, and copulation. <laughs> that's a that's a neuroscience joke. Um, so the four Fs, and then along you know eventually mammals evolve and they evolve this layer on top which is called the limbic system limbic literally meaning boundary or layer which is where emotions the circuitry for emotions live and then you know we get to primates and particularly us and we see the evolution of this very new cerebral cortex and you know referred to as the neocortex and that's a story it the problem is it's a story that doesn't match the evidentiary record in molecular genetics and in embryology. So when you look at, when you peer into deep into cells and you look at their molecular structure, and particularly the structure of the genetic material that is regulating the cell's function, and you look at the setup of the the nervous system of the brain, uh, you know, in an embryo, this is not, you don't see anything which looks like a brain that evolves in three layers. You know, the only animal on the planet who has a lizard brain is a
0: lizard. You, you see quite, and this is a point you make very well, you, throughout evolution and, and through the animals today, we see actually very similar brains if you just look at it in a certain light.
1: Yeah. So this, and I should say, you know, I'm very data-driven even as a, I mean, almost to a fault. I mean, if you talk to my husband or my daughter, they will, they could regale you with stories um, of how irritating it is to have, you know, uh, a family member who's very data-driven, but I'm very data-driven and, you know, these are not my data. I didn't collect these data. The observation, which I think is a brilliant observation that the structure of the brain that, that all mammalian brains and perhaps even all vertebrate brains have the same types of cells with the same genes and the same, and there are some, you know, small differences here and there, but generally speaking, at least for mammals, all mammals have the same parts. What's different is that these parts develop in a specific order that holds for all mammalian species that have ever been studied and what varies is the duration of each stage of development and the longer a stage runs the more of that particular type of neuron or that particular type of um, tissue is produced and Brains are kind of like companies. As they get larger, they reorganize themselves to become more and more and more efficient. That's a, a phrase from the neurobiologist um, George Streeter. And the work that I'm referring to about the, the developmental plan and that, you know, what's really happening here is that the timing of the turning on and off of genes is what's changing in evolution. And that's producing changes in the amount of tissue, certain types of tissue, certain types of neurons, certain types of materials that are being produced during the um, setup of the nervous system in an embryo. And that's what makes our brains look so different, you know, from a rat brain or or from a lizard brain or from a bird brain. Um, but the actual complement of neurons, the actual complement of tissue is not different. That work comes from uh, my colleague, Barb Finley, who is a neuroscientist and who, you know, really brilliantly looked beyond what, what she could see with the naked eye. And she also, you know, does something which I think more psychologists are now turning to, which is to um, to take a more comparative approach across species and not look to other species to try to understand humans, but to to try to understand species in their own terms, what abilities do they have for their own niches? What what is the brain doing? Their brains' capacities for their own uh, lives. These animals, and that is a better way of understanding how, what we can learn about other animals that we can generalize to ourselves than looking at a mouse as a really inferior, like human.
0: Yeah, as if as if. They, they just lack a human brain for one. Right, exactly. They just or, lack
1: a big cortex. And so, you know, if the, <laughs> right, exactly. We were just
0: the mouse that were smarter. And right, right, Nina. right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so then I just also want to um, loop back to the idea of the brain and as a, this kind of, this piece of equipment that maintains everything, particularly in terms of, you know, your, your core needs. So what's your heart doing? What's your, what are your lungs doing in intake? Because you have this great analogy of it as a, a budgeting machine, which I kind of would would love to talk about. And so could you just explain that for us?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So you have a lot going on inside your body. So do I, so do all of our listeners. So right now, as we're talking, you and I are talking to each other and our listeners are listening. There's a, each of us has inside our bodies, a whole drama going on, like uh, with dozens of systems that have to be coordinated in the most metabolically efficient way, because metabolic efficiency like frugal spending <laughs> is a major selection pressure on evolution but it's also a major pressure on the adaptation of any individual if you're you know junk inside your body isn't working with you know the in the most efficient way you're going to pay a price for that and that price is illness and it could be a mental illness it could be a physical illness but eventually that's what's going to happen so there are, there's a lot going on inside our bodies and something has to coordinate those systems. Now there are you know, intrinsic mechanisms in your body that can do a little bit of that coordination, but the more complicated a body is, the more necessary it is to have a command center, which is your brain. There are technical ways to talk about this, about what the brain is doing and what its functions are in terms of regulating the body. But I find that um, the metaphor of a budget, running a budget, is a good one. Now, you know, the caution here, right, is that metaphors are always faustian bargains. There every metaphor is wrong in some way. The question is how wrong is it? <laughs> now, so, you know, and I so I think budgeting, you know, it has some issues, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's a pretty good one. And the idea is that your brain is running a budget for your body and it's not budgeting, you know, money. It's budgeting resources that are necessary for you to stay alive and that are limited like oxygen and glucose and salt and water and so on. And you can think about the things that you do or the things that are going on in your body as deposits or withdrawals. So exercise, for example, big withdrawal, but it's like an investment because when you pay back what you've spent... You actually are investing in a stronger, healthier you with a better yeah, memory. A and return. you know, yeah, exactly. When you give someone a hug, you know, or you're very supportive to someone, that's also like an investment um, because we're social animals and we we don't just make deposits and withdrawals in our own body budgets. We we metaphorically make deposits and withdrawals in other people's body budgets too, and they return the favor. We didn't. We, we're we're social species. We're caretakers of each other's nervous systems, uh, and that's a a major aspect of um, how our brains function, actually. And so you can think about, you know, rewards are deposits, essentially.
0: Well, because it, you have a great example. If if you know, at first, the idea of a budget might sound a little bit alien. Uh, to your experience, but then you do have some really good examples. Uh, for instance, with mental health and, and PTSD, you can see it in that perspective.
1: Yeah. So, in both books that I've written, How Emotions Are Made and Seven and a Half Lessons about the Brain, I'm using this metaphor of body budgeting. And so, for example, you know, cortisol is not a stress hormone, cortisol is a hormone that your brain directs your body to secrete when your brain believes that you have a big metabolic outlay coming, meaning you're gonna spend a lot and you need to get glucose into your bloodstream really fast so that your cells can use it really fast because you either have to learn something new or you have to move your body. And so why is there this mistake about cortisol being called a stress hormone? Because all stress, means. All stress is, is your brain preparing your body for a big metabolic outlay. And some stress, is good stress. Like it's stress that makes you healthy and strong, like exercise. Exercise is considered a good stressor. There are other stressors which are considered bad stressors, meaning they don't contribute. They're not really investments. They don't contribute to a stronger, better you. They're like taxes that you pay needlessly, actually. So unlike taxes, you know, in countries, which, you know, are often used, but not always used in the best way, these metabolic taxes are completely and utterly useless. They All they do is contribute over the long term to illness. Also, the most metabolically efficient way to run a body is predictively. So it's not like your brain is seeing and hearing stuff in the world and then reacting to that stuff. Your brain is actually always guessing using your past experience and making similarity comparisons. Your brain is sort of metaphorically asking itself, well, in the past, what was similar to what was similar to what's going on right now? What did I do last time? Okay, that's what I'm going to do this time. And, and so it's actually anticipating and preparing in advance. And so, because that's what's most efficient. Yeah, to do. a good,
0: a good, someone who's good with their budget sort of predicts the future, you know, they, they look at what's coming up in the future and prepare Well, uh, yeah,
1: all neurotypical brains predict the future. It's just some predictions are a little more efficient than others. And, you know, the analogies that work really, that are really fun, actually, to explain how this works are things like baseball or you know soccer which is you know you would call football or american football you know these games where really what's going on it's a battle of wits it's you know because all the brains are predicting and they're all trying to outsmart each other and um, that's really what's happening in these in these games right that's part of the skill um, of these games the thing is that when your brain predicts that a big metabolic outlay is coming, so it's a stress, you're experiencing a stress and there is no need for that metabolic outlay, over time, the, you know each time this happens, you pay a little tax and over time, um, those taxes add up to a deficit. And when you're running a deficit in your body budget, you feel it as fatigue or as distress or as an inability to concentrate. And that, if it continues, will lead to depression or... I mean, depression you could think about as a complete bankruptcy.
0: That was Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett there discussing the idea of a brain budget and the consequences to your health when that budget runs out. If you'd like to hear Lisa and I dig a little deeper into the subject of the brain, discuss the subject of free will... And explain how our brains are wired into one another. Check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's podcast app. And of course, if you want to learn more about the brain, check out Lisa's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, which is on sale now and published by Picador. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time.